Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, can we talk about The Fly and Mike Pence right now, or should we just move on? Dude, do you want to talk about The Fly instead of his pink eye? I mean, I don't... (laughs) I mean, I don't want to talk about either. I'd rather talk about the Dodgers and hopefully sweeping the Padres, I hope. Um, This is the sound of me knocking on wood here. (laughs) Literally everybody who listens to the podcast knows what you would rather be talking about, and I am here to reassure the listeners that we are not doing a segment on the vice presidential debate this week, so there... Or the Dodgers. This or week, the, or, or baseball, the Dodgers, or exactly. sports of any kind. Although, yes, Kenley Jansen gives me a heart attack every time he takes them out. <sighs> so anyway, yes, that is the end of our vice presidential debate and our politics discussion for this podcast. <laughs> that sounds like a transition. Let's kick things off with headlines. Leading off in executive news, Susan Rovner has officially joined NBC Universal as its chairman of entertainment content. Meanwhile, Lauren Correo is out as Freeform's head of originals as new network president Tara Duncan is expected to build her own executive team. Over at Netflix, Ryan Murphy is taking another stab at the true crime genre, though it will not be an American crime story season. It will be a limited series about Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, Richard Jenkins will play the serial killer's father. In streaming renewals, Netflix has handed out an early season four pickup for YouTube import Cobra Kai. Over at Apple, Dickinson has also scored its own early renewal for season three. Both shows return to their respective platforms in January with new seasons, Dan. And how nice that we can at least briefly talk about something positive before we get to very negative stuff in headlines. So, yes, um, over at HBO, the Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon has tapped the Outsiders' Patty Considine as one of its leads. In other casting news, Peacock's Tina Fey comedy Girls 5 Eva is shaping up nicely as Busy Phillips and Paula Pell have joined Sarah Bareilles and Renee Elise Goldsbury as its central girl group. And I think we can all agree this is going to be a perfect television show and the only good thing worth looking forward to in the world. Oh, yeah, they still have more casting to do, but sign me up already, man. And, you know, wrapping up headlines, Law & Order SVU fans awaiting Chris Maloney's return will have to wait a little bit, a longer bit, I don't know, longer as spinoff organized crime has been delayed after showrunner Matt Olmsted, a veteran of Dick Wolf's Chicago franchise, stepped down following creative differences. I hear that they're having trouble figuring out what the show is going to be. And that's kind of the problem that happens when you pick up something straight to series with no scripts and a star and a broad concept attached. And it's a cop drama at a time, well, like this. So we hear production and casting had yet to begin on the series. It will no longer be part of NBC's quote unquote fall schedule. Although sources say the network does hope the show will still be part of its 2020-21 schedule. It's also the second Law & Order show to remain in purgatory now, joining Hate Crimes, which was picked up all the way back in fall 2018. Fair enough. Well, with all that out of the way, it's time for Top 5. Number 1. Leading off, Glow and On Becoming a God in Central Florida have joined the ranks of the unrenewed, Dan. Indeed. This is becoming a regular podcast discussion topic and... Guess what? It's probably not done here. This week, Netflix reversed course on the fourth and final season of Glow, citing challenges associated with filming the ensemble show, which, as you may know, features some physically intimate wrestling scenes. Sources say that financial issues also played a factor in the decision, as the season costs were expected to spiral beyond the $8 million to $12 million range. 
I'm happy that you kicked us off with that that opening because it is super interesting because they this was, you know, Glow was a show that had a lot of critical acclaim. You can speak to that. And you, you already had production that started pre-pandemic. They finished the first episode and part of the second before the, you know, the massive shutdown. And, you know, the other factor contributing here is that the show would they have proceeded with filming the final season would not have been ready until 2022. That means it would have been off the air since August, 2019. And when you have a show that's off the air for three years like that, that means you have to spend more money to remarket and repromote the show. So compared, you know, when you factor in the added costs associated with filming during the pandemic and PPE and et cetera, and the exploding budgets that way, and the time it takes to do that, Paired with the risk it takes to do that, paired with the money that you have to spend to re-promote it, it doesn't even matter that they own it. It's just these are spiraling costs at a time when Netflix has a new executive at the helm and maybe they're looking to, to you know, maybe cut costs. I don't know. But that's, you know, when you look at, at the way that Netflix considers renewals, you know, that they work, they look at the how much the show costs how many new subscribers it brings in and if that money would be would be best allocated to new projects. And when you factor in a higher budget than what it had before, paired with the marketing stuff that you that you would naturally come with it like this, at a certain point, you just have to sit there and say it doesn't make financial sense and we don't want to put people at risk. Um, and this was also not the only bad news for Genji no. Cohan of the week, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was a, a tough one for for Genji, who, of course, created and brought Orange is the New Black to the streamer. It was their second original after House of Cards, one of by by far one of their most important and pivotal shows that they've ever created. And this week, Genji Cohen and on top of Glow lost her other show, Teenage Bounty Hunters, which was canceled after one season. You know, she's got one remaining show coming on Netflix. It's the um, anthology Social Distance this is coming at a time where Genji has always remained, at least under the Cindy Holland regime at Netflix, one of the streamer's most important producers. She was one of their first overalls. You know, that overall deal, I, I hear, expires this year. She's rumored to be developing other projects. I, you know, definitely something something to monitor there to see what happens. But, yeah, that's a tough double whammy. <laughs> It is. And, uh, you know, people who listen to the podcast regularly know that I was a fan of Teenage Bounty Hunters. And you can check out our interview from episode 86 with that show's creator, Kathleen Jordan. And unfortunately, you can also hear in that interview that they had been given thought to how that show could evolve in a second season. This was clearly something that if they didn't expect it, they were at least hoping for it or moving in a direction of planning for it. So it's it's too bad. Um, I definitely have things to say about this, but talk a little bit about what went down with uh, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, the other most recent of the uncancelings. But heaven knows there could be two or three more before we end this podcast. Yeah. And by uncancelings, we we know you mean the unrenewed dance. I we do. Can, we can both split hairs here. Uh, yeah. Showtime reverse course on plans for a second season of On Becoming a God in Central Florida. It's the dark comedy starring Kirsten Dunst, you know, Look, it, the, the cabler cited scheduling issues for its decision to cancel, you know, the, the show. But it's also something that's set at a water park. I mean, when I think about filming and I think about the state of the world and I mean, if you've got amusement parks that are closed and yes, this is I think it's a period show, right? It's like in the 80s. Is that right? It's it's um, a period show and it's set at a water park occasionally. Like, I, I okay. don't think that was a requirement yeah. for the next season, but it certainly that is one of the places it's set. Yeah. But, so then you factor in scheduling issues. You factor in the fact that the rising costs. So wait, so you factor in scheduling issues with the cast. Then you factor in the rising costs that are associated with filming during a pandemic. 
Then you factor in the fact that I'm just going to say factor and fact a bunch more times, Dan. <laughs> when you consider the facts, see what I did there? It's also owned by Sony, an independent studio. That means that means Showtime had to pay a licensing fee. So you're looking at added cost on top of a licensing fee on top of scheduling issues. And at a certain point, it sounds like one strike one, strike two and strike three to me. And, you know, in a larger sense, you know, a, as you said, you know, this list of the unrenewed continues to get long. Um, it, you know, it started with USA Network's Evil, which was a scheduling issue with Milo Ventimiglia, who has This Is Us, and was going to shoot the uh, the Evil Knievel miniseries for USA Network during his hiatus. That evaporated with the pandemic. Then Netflix canceled The Society, and I am not okay with this. True TV axed, I'm sorry. Uh, Stumptown went away at, at ABC. And as friend of the five, Gene Bentley pointed out on Twitter, the majority of these shows are female-focused shows, Dan. And that is, of course, notable. And and one thing that has to be sort of acknowledged is that we could look back at this in a month and it could just be that we're looking at a demographically unrepresentative sample. I, I think that yeah. these are this is not the end. There's no of way this that, that these shows are all connected, that they're sitting there and saying, what female driven show can we cut because it's too expensive to do? That's not what's happening. Yeah, that's that's not what's happening. And I do think that if it's a that, shitty coincidence, it's a shitty coincidence. But I think if we look back in a month, you're going to discover that there are probably about, you know, there could be 20 more shows that are in this basket. And it could end up looking much more, quote unquote, equitable. Uh, you know, there is still, though, the cynical part of me that wonders if there is a conventional wisdom going around Hollywood, rightly or wrongly, on the basis of one thing or the other, that, for example, female antihero dramedies are, I don't know, not selling well this week in international territories or something, you know, like that seems like the sort of thing that that guys would talk about in the cafeteria as explanations for why things like this would happen. Um, I don't buy Can we it. Get a sound effect of the big buzzer here. Just one giant like prices, right? Or what, what's that show? Family Feud? Like, no, that's no, not, a, that's I, not no I would. I would. Uh, but I still it wouldn't surprise me if someone in town had used that as an excuse on one or two of these. I, I think it's much simpler than that. I think if you look at these, a lot of these were very borderline shows. It's not like I'm sorry was a wildly successful, popular show. ABC's Stumptown was. And I mean, let's just, just to touch on I'm, I'm sorry. You're also, you know, that's you know, aired on a network, True TV, that has just undergone a massive change as part of the big Warner Media reorganization. It has no dedicated executive anymore, and it's now being overseen by HBO's Casey Bloy. So the future of scripted at that, at that network, the future of content at that network, no one knows right now. But Stumptown was always a, it was always a, you know, borderline show, it was always on the bubble. I think that if you look at the society, and I'm not okay with this, neither one of them were clear breakout hits for Netflix uh, on Becoming a God. That's one of those things where if it had won the Golden Globe for Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Dunst, if it had been nominated for an Emmy for her, those are the kind of things that probably would have helped it. But it didn't have those things, which are all unfortunate. But a lot of these shows are are critically adored. I wrote fairly positive reviews for several of them. Uh, the, the one here that is infuriating and baffling is is glow i i like i cannot wrap my head around this this is a show that had three years of positive reviews this is also a show that won or at least was nominated for basically every meaningful award you could be nominated for it had emmy nominations golden globe nominations etc uh this is a show that 
as we've talked about, came from Genji Kohan, who heaven knows Netflix owes much to. This is also a show populated by up and coming actors, all of whom you would think you would want to remain in business with. You you want to remain in business with Alison Brie. You and by the way, Alison <laughs> Brie was one of the most sought after actresses when she booked Glow. She got offers for broadcast stuff, cable stuff, everything under the sun. She was number one on everyone's want list and she picked Glow. And you don't just want to remain in business with Betty Gilpin. I, I think people should be wheeling a truck up to her house with as much money as as they well, can to let her ne do things. Netflix, I hear, did did pay the cast. So which is good. And but, the same thing happened, I, I hear, for On Becoming a God in Central Florida. But I just don't understand how if you're Netflix and this has been, you know, everyone involved said that the writers had arced out a final season. I, I don't understand how you don't say how you don't start off by saying, OK, we gave you eight episodes or 10 episodes. You know, let's try six or we gave you six. But then you're still paying the writers to keep going and you still have to incur the cost of shooting, even if it's a wrap up movie, which is something co-star Mark Marin is campaigning for. That's still going to be an expensive endeavor. And the other piece of it that that I think. You know, that we forget because we can talk about the business of it so much is and and our interview, our showrunner spotlight interview this week touches on it brilliantly is the human factor of this. It Filming those scenes, Dan, how do you shoot one final episode or a two hour movie of glow and not have any wrestling in that? I, and I don't you know? I don't know, but I think you try to find what the answer is. I mean, you you yeah, look do they all go to the Tyler Perry's campus and and, and quarantine for two weeks because that's expensive, too. I mean, I don't know. But it's not like WWE hasn't been doing wrestling under certain very, very restrictive conditions. So if the answer, if everyone involved in this wants to do a final season or a final movie or whatever, and they're all willing to basically hole up in a dingy motel somewhere, which is one of the plots of the show in the first couple seasons, it, it just feels as if if everyone involved wanted to do it, given the amount of money Netflix throws around with great regularity the concern on the money side should not be a concern. The concern on the human health and well-being side clearly, you know, supersedes everything. But it wasn't like in the aftermath of this cancellation, everybody went on Twitter and said, yeah, we were all uncomfortable with doing this. We didn't really want to do this. We were scared of doing this. We don't want to do this anymore. If they'd all done that, then everyone would have been like, OK, of course, clearly you're seriously stay alive. I mean, come on. But. They seemed genuinely unhappy for the most part and felt as if there were stories they still wanted to tell. So of these unrenewals, that is the one that to me seems the most inexplicable just in terms of what can you do to work around this to find a way to resolve a story for a show that has done good service for you for a few years. And so but again, there, there are just so many factors and and. Money is easy for us to talk about. It's not our money, but seriously. Right. But, uh, yeah. you know, at just, you know, one last note on the, on the money, then we can move on. But, you know, you also have a new executive running the ship at, at Netflix. So maybe there's a mandate from the top to kind of rein in spending. Maybe that's one of the appeals or maybe you're going to, you know, pick better shots now instead of throwing, you know, $50 million at the wall to see, you know, if you can get two seasons out of a multicam that, you know, that is, is a piece of poop the minute that you green light it from reading the script and because it checks off one demo bucket. I don't know. I mean, that's definitely, I think, something for us to, to monitor as, as things progress. What's Bella going to do at Netflix? That's a great question. And, and 
you know, to me, one of my first questions for her is with these three cancellations, because look, how, of this list of the un, of, of the the unrenewed, three of them are for Netflix, which is the company with the most the biggest content spending budget on the planet. So, and, you know, we said this when the society and I am not okay with this was canceled, we're, we're both canceled, but when Netflix is saying, Hey, these shows are getting too expensive for us and we're going to, we're not going to do these anymore. Sound the alarm, man. And, and we're going to have to follow that because there's no question. And we, I feel like we've now done a, a Netflix canceling things story, like four or five weeks in a row. Cause then there was also the dark crystal, et cetera. So we are definitely seeing Netflix tightening its belts. Just to me, there's a very big difference between honoring a show that has done some service to your service or network or whatever, which would be the case of Glow versus shows like The Society and uh, I'm Not Okay With This, where I would have liked a second season of both of those shows, but I don't feel as if on a karmic level Netflix owes those shows anything, whereas I do think that Glow deserved better than to Absolutely. wrap up the way it is. And I mean, look, all, all of these shows that 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 get the renewal and celebrate that at, only to have the rug pulled out later, all of them deserve that, you know, but, you know, and, and the, you have other factors, too. You know, the society has a, a young, mostly, you know, cast of teenagers and young adults and and. That's an ensemble show. So how do you shoot crowd scenes? You know, that that's another thing that we've been talking a lot about and that I think TV will look very different. You know, I think watching some of these broadcast shows that come back later this month, that's honestly, I'm watching with as much curiosity as everyone else because I want to know, will we be able to tell the difference? And I think that's something that you'll be able to speak to in, in a lot of your reviews too. But look, anyway. Look, looking forward to it, kind of. Yeah. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll definitely monitor more on uh, the the sad news of the the unrenewed. So of the unrenewal. So with that out of the way now, let, let's shift up. Number two. Number two. Speaking of the pandemic up next this week, Saturday Night Live, maybe without a musical guest for its second episode of its new season after the Lauren Michael sketch show dropped musician Morgan Whalen. Is that how you say his name? I've never heard of this guy. I'm not a country music fan unless you count Brandy Carlisle and the Dixie Chicks. Anyway, the country singer was not allowed to perform after he broke COVID-19 safety protocols. He was blasted on social media after being seen partying on the on platforms like TikTok without a mask and with a large group of people. Uh, the singer apologized for his actions and Lauren Michaels left the door open for him to return, possibly at a later date. You know, Dan, SNL returned last weekend. It, it featured a limited live audience, which we found out later were paid to, to appear at Studio 8H and paid as if they were part of the workforce. That was how they, the show and the production got around New York safety protocols. But I also think when you have a, a guest who's coming into that landscape, where you have all the audience members and all the ticketed guests who are required to take COVID tests and temperature checks. And everyone is doing, there's like a, an, an in-depth story on our site on THR.com about how SNL returned to Studio 8H. And when you have a production that's taking these kind of safeguards with, with not just the cast, but the audience members, and then to see your musical guest out partying and kind of like giving the middle finger to the show. It's nice to see that there's some recourse. Well, it, it definitely points to one of two things. Uh, the first possibility is that this kid is just a dumbass. I mean, that's that's just <laughs> Say dumbass again. That was fun. That's just as straightforward as it is. You know, if if you know that you have a career defining 
uh, opportunity coming if you can't stay quarantined for a week and follow whatever rules you're given a certain amount of that's got to be on you and your common sense uh so i mean he admitted he he was he's been immature and so hopefully he will learn from this the other alternative though is that it points to what the saturday night live musical appearance impact on the the industry is or isn't at this point i mean there have definitely been points in that show's run where an appearance on saturday night live was was career making you know where it could make your album where it could basically cause you to blow up for the mainstream it maybe it's not as powerful anymore if if it's not a sufficient enough incentive to keep this kid sane for a week and out of trouble i mean remember when SNL and, and uh, when Sinead O'Connor torpedoed her career with her by ripping up a picture of the Pope on SNL. <sighs> definitely, definitely people, her. definitely people uh. overreacted to that one for 30 years. So mm-hmm. poor Sinead O'Connor. But yes. So, yeah, the, the premiere was an interesting thing. And it's been and it's been interesting to see the various stories about how they handled the crowd, because it looked and felt different. The shots into the audience where they were in these odd masked grape clusters, which someone told them had a health benefit. It's, it doesn't make full sense to me, but I am not a trained professional in that respect. It, it definitely looked and felt different. But then you also had Kate McKinnon without a mask, just sitting down with them for the brief tribute that they did to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So there was some inconsistency to the whole thing, but they're following whatever protocols they're following. There were also wildly inconsistent messages throughout regarding just the optics of it all. So you had Michael Che and Colin Joe sitting like two feet away from each other. You had you didn't have many group scenes. I, I think if you look at the sketches, they tended to be definitely fewer people on stage at once. It wasn't like there was a classroom scene with all of the cast members, uh, you know, as they often do with the substitute teacher or whatever. Uh, there was there was definitely none of that. Um, but yeah, I, then then you got at the end and you had Chris Rock wearing his mask around his chin, telling people to wear masks as the cast was hugging behind him. It was it, the the optics were challenging to the whole thing. And then the episode itself was was, I would say, pretty flat. I thought it was not a great use of Chris Rock. It's always disappointing when the show can't find use for someone who really shouldn't be hard to use. I mean, we're talking about a former Saturday Night Live cast member here. The guy knows how to act in sketches and they gave him almost nothing to do. And that was too bad. I didn't think Jim Carrey's uh, impression of of Joe Biden was particularly interesting. It, it didn't seem to have much to do with the actual 2020 version of Joe Biden. Um, I've I mean, been you, you mean it felt more like, as you said in, in your critics notebook, it felt like Fire Marshal Bill from In Living Color. There was there was a lot of Fire Marshal Bill to it. And that was that was a choice they made. And then you throw in the fact that I've been sick of Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump for three and a half years at this point. So, I mean, I've been sick of Donald Trump for more than four years. That's a different conversation. They could still Sorry. have a, they could still have a good and funny and pointed impression that they were doing of him. But and we instead, also, can we they also just nothing. talk about I'm, I'm I'm interrupting you like crazy and I'm sorry, Dan. But can we also <laughs> just talk about the fact that they didn't acknowledge until Weekend Update? They didn't talk about the fact that Trump tested positive for COVID. Everyone was waiting to see what SNL was going to do. And it 
to, and it poked fun at the shit show debate. No, but uh, the, the, the debate heavily acknowledged the eventual testing positive for COVID. It was it was a, it was quote it was maybe subtext a little bit more than you know it wasn't like it was the centerpiece of the sketch, uh, but it's the problem with 2020 is that. You know, there was no acknowledgement of, say, for example, his taxes or of the fact that his wife uh, said mean things about Christmas or so many things that in a different world very likely would have been the basis for entire sketches. It, it You know, everything gets submerged after the latest wave that passes over. So there was no question that basically they, they had a debate sketch. They had to do the debate sketch. They were, you know, paying Jim Carrey's freight, so whatever. But there were 75 news stories in the week that didn't get acknowledged because basically it was the debate in the opening and Trump has COVID in weekend update. But yeah, lots of things got lost. And that's just that's just the reality of what SNL has to do at this point. There, there's no way for them to keep up. And also they're not good enough to keep up. So it's a combination of those two factors. If they were if they were a well-honed, sharply satirical team, probably they could find a way to work in more than they did. But even still, the show is not designed for them to tackle everything. They just can't do it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, stay tuned. I don't know if uh, SNL is going to replace, uh, find a new musical guest, but uh, definitely something I think I'll be looking forward to seeing how they handle, at least on Saturday night. <laughs> that gives that gives them room to do two more toothless sketches. So we'll see. I I, I bet you they're going to be able to find someone who's going to be able to perform, even if it's just another one of those uh, uh, closed circuit feeds of Miley Cyrus in her backyard. I, I feel like you can always count on Miley Cyrus to do a backyard acoustic concert if that's what you want. And they did it back in the spring. She she was one of the SNL at home musical guests. So we'll see. I, I bet they find a way to do it because I bet they don't want to have to figure out how to write two more sketches. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, stay tuned for, for that one. Number three. Up third, The Gilmore Girls is coming to the CW. This week, we learned that Netflix's four-episode A Year in the Life miniseries will air over four nights around Thanksgiving on the broadcast network. And we're giving this a full topic this week because it sort of ties in with a number of bigger trends. And listener Mo Walker emailed us recently and asked if there would be more, quote, gently used programming coming. And this is... Something vaguely resembling that. It's it's a different thing, though, in terms of where it's coming from, where it's coming from on the studio side and how that ties into just how it made its way to Netflix. So break down how this is unique, how this is not just, I don't know, NBC picking up a medical drama from Canada or the CW grabbing some random international thing with Patrick Dempsey. How is this different? Well, first, Dan, I wouldn't classify Gilmore Girls uh, a year in the life as gently used programming. So we've heard, we've seen that the broadcast networks have licensed gently used U.S. originals that debuted on other streaming services, right, or other platforms. Fox picked up and licensed L.A.'s Finest, right, the first two seasons. You've had the CW pick up, you know, Tell Me a Story and Swamp Thing, which pr both previously aired on um, DC Universe and CBS All Access, and aired those to help fill the holes on its schedule. Gilmore Girls is not those shows, that is not the same. You know, this is a show that was highly anticipated. Every single piece of information about 
Gilmore Girls A Year in the Life was a story. It was among the most anticipated shows of that year. And this is in the peak TV landscape, right? 400, 500 shows. That was easily atop a lot of viewers' uh, want lists. And, you know, at the time, obviously we know Netflix doesn't release viewership data, but we've heard but you know, from a third-party measurement company that it was a hit for Netflix, whatever that means. And obviously it was a hit. It was like, you know, in addition to the anticipation, this was a show that that was just so eagerly awaited by everyone and everyone talked about it. It 100 percent broke out. It is not Swamp Thing. So to me, this is something that's interesting because you're looking at the CW which and, and Warner Brothers, which is a co-owner of the CW. That's what the W stands for. Looking at, at a schedule and saying this is a show that that originally aired on our network. One of our parent companies owns the show and licensed it to net to Netflix to make the show be able to come back again and sold that show. The, 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 it sold the library to Netflix. It's it sold the the re, the reboot and the up, update or whatever we're calling it. it. It sold that to Netflix too. These are two companies that said we can make an event out of this. And for Netflix, dude, this is win win across the board, right? You've got Netflix, which is getting more exposure to its library. Definitely got some money from Warner Brothers for licensing the show to the CW and its streaming platform where it'll be for, for 30 days. You can watch for free if you're if you're one of the few people who don't subscribe to Netflix. But this is, you know, it's, it's a win for the CW and it's a win for Netflix financially. And it's probably just going to drive more people back to watch the original show, which guess where that lives? Netflix. So, yeah, I mean, the other piece of this that I think is, it, you know, that that's worth noting is. It's incredibly rare for Netflix to license one of its original shows, whether they own it or not, to a linear platform. There's been one that I can count, and that's BoJack Horseman, which sold to Comedy Central. The repeats sold to Comedy Central in 2018. And I know you're going to, Dan, you were quick to point out, well, what about One Day at a Time? And then you reminded me of Took and Birdie. Those were shows that Netflix canceled that returned for new seasons on pop and Adult Swim, respectively. This is Netflix saying, we don't want to make these shows anymore, and then giving the okay for new seasons to proceed elsewhere, or as these other deals were made with, with the companies behind them. So is this more gently used programming for you know Gilmore Girls to the CW? In a way, it's a filler. It's a way to fill, fill and eventize some Thanksgiving programming. But yeah, to me, it's a, it's, it's a story to watch, because if this is, again, something that Bella is going to start to do at Netflix and license their content and and drive people back to the service that way. I mean, we're starting to see these streaming services, you know, sell their stuff elsewhere, right? You know, like South Park, which is something that's owned by Viacom CBS and should wind up eventually on Paramount Plus is on HBO Max on the Warner Media's platform. And they're trying they're doing that because well, that's already a place that that's got Big Bang Theory and Rick and Morty and Friends and and Game of Thrones, and it's definitely has an option to get and expand to a bigger audience. And then the hope is eventually when that show moves, subscribers will come to Paramount Plus, too. So I wonder, too, if this is part of a, of a Netflix strategy of saying, hey, we have this over here. Come take a look. Come back to our platform. We have, you know, 200 however episodes of, of Gilmore Girls, at least until that winds up reverting to HBO Max. So super interesting story to me, but this is, this has been five minutes of me just nerding out about a random deal. <laughs> it's, what the, <laughs> it's what the listeners are here for, Leslie. Yeah, it's been a week, Dan. Number four. 
Up next, it is time for our showrunner spotlight segment. I am so excited to welcome this week's guest. He is the captain of the Star Trek franchise for CBS All Access. Alex Kurtzman is also fresh off of Showtime's The Comey Rule and counts Hawaii Five-0 and Fringe and Alias and Xena and Hercules among his credits. Up next, he's got the third season of the flagship Star Trek Discovery and CBS's Silence of the Lamb sequel, Clarice. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. It's nice to see you, even via Google Hangout. It's very nice to see you too, Leslie, always. You know, leading off, we do have some breaking news this week that was announced at a New York Comic Con. The great Kate Mulgrew is returning to the franchise to reprise her groundbreaking Voyager role. Uh, she was the first woman to lead a Star Trek series, and she is going to top line the Nickelodeon animated show, Star Trek Prodigy. Can you walk us through the decision to connect the, the new animated show with Voyager? I think when you're looking at legacy characters, you have to have a very specific reason to bring them back. And without revealing too many details, uh, Kevin and Dan came in with a pitch that was just so, it just blew the doors off the place. And there was a, a really clear, wonderful reason to bring Janeway into the story. And, you know, we didn't know if she was going to do it. Uh, and, and obviously we weren't, we just, we just had no idea what, how she would respond to it. So it, it actually started a year ago. It's, it, it blows my mind that it took that it actually held and that the, the information didn't leak. But this has been in the works for a long time. Now, this is something that always interests me with this expanding portfolio of Star Trek properties that you guys have now. How do you approach them in terms of, I guess, how open they are to new fans versus something that maybe uh, maybe more for the established trekkers, et cetera, the people who actually have a deep investment already who you don't need to sell the property to? Well, I, I think I, I would actually say you always have to sell the property to, to the deep fans. I think they're, they're the most, um, they scrutinize everything in, in, in a way that fans of Trek have done since the beginning. And so you can never be doing anything that seeks to sort of say, well, we're only going to hit one group here and we're not going to care about another. That being said, I think that the death of great franchises is when you try and please everybody. I think some things have to really be focused on um, specific groups or specific ideas, and, and you, you can assume that not everybody will love it. And that's very par for the course with Star Trek, so that's okay. We, we are always um, seeking to please diehard fans, but I think one of the things that Star Trek has not done as effectively over time is bring in new people, um, particularly much younger people. And I don't see any reason why this amazing, amazing story that has existed for 55 years, that is so about everything that we are dealing with in our lives right now, cannot be shared and enjoyed by younger generations as much as it can be enjoyed by diehard fans. But how conscious are you of sort of the levels of accessibility to those new fans? Like of the, I guess, is it five or six things in the portfolio currently? Mm -hmm. As you as you look at them, which are the ones that you feel are most accessible to newbies versus because, I mean, obviously the established fans, you don't want to piss off Star Trek fans. I completely understand that. But which do you see as the most accessible within this and perhaps the least? You know, it's hard to say, honestly, because. Like, we've had a very interesting journey with, with Lower Decks. Um, Jonathan Franks once told me a story that when they started Next Generation, people hated it. Diehard fans hated it. They were like, this is not the Star Trek that I know. This is not Kirk and Spock. Two years in, 
you know, everyone started loving the show. And now, of course, it's remembered as one of the greatest, if not the greatest Star Trek show of all time, depending on which, you know, which fan you ask. And I think what it kind of told me was that there will always be an initial reaction to something new, right? Like, oh, this is different. This isn't what I'm familiar with. And so I don't like it. But once it, our central premise is that you have to love Star Trek to be making these shows. And I think that in the case of Lower Decks, there was a lot of like, oh, what's this? Star Trek's never been a broad comedy before. Oh, they're trying to just cater to the lowest common denominator. That couldn't be less true. If you look at Lower Decks, and it's it's gratifying to see how people are writing about it now as we get to the end of the season, that is a Star Trek show. It's not just a cheap grab for comedy. It, those shows are written to be great Star Trek episodes. And yes, they appeal to younger audiences as much as they will hopefully appeal to diehard fans. So I think the goal is always to try and find the sweet spot where you're you're able to get to both. You know, in a larger sense, you know, you really uh, rejuvenated the franchise a couple of years ago with Star Trek Discovery. You know, as we've mentioned on the show before, you've had a, a number of showrunner changes, not just, you know, on this, but but, you know, Picard, you just brought in Terry Metalis, for mm -hmm. example. Um, you know, with season three, you've got Michelle Paradise, who was promoted to co-showrunner alongside yourself. Yeah. Um, she's the third showrunner on Discovery. How would you say this season is different with Michelle at the helm now? Obviously, she w worked on season two as well. Well, Michelle really became um, essential to, the, to, to my working process in season two. I, I recognized very quickly that Michelle has a lot of things that I need from a partner. And by the time we were at the end of the season and we were writing the last two episodes, Jenny Lumet, my writing partner, and then Michelle, my co-showrunner on, um, on Discovery, it was, it was really as if we were already running the show together. So it was a very easy transition to be moving into that. I, Michelle's unbelievably organized. She's very, very thoughtful. And um, when I'm, you know, I, I am spending my days bouncing between many different shows. And so I've learned this weird gear shift of like, 100% focus on what's in front of me for a window of time until everybody gets the answers that they need and that thing can move forward and then I will shift to the next thing. And Michelle makes that so easy for me. She's very generous in that way and she makes she she's very thoughtful about Star Trek and she's great at running the room and she empowers the people on the staff to run the room well, to be part of the room well. Um, so she has that amazing combo of real authority as a co-showrunner, but also the generosity of allowing people to own their ideas. And I think that's a very rare thing. You know, and I do want to point out that you've got obviously Michelle as the co-showrunner here, Jenny Lumet as your writing partner, obviously your producing partners, Heather Caden uh, yeah. at Secret Hideout, three women at the um, with working alongside you at the top of Star Trek. That's pretty, I, I love hearing that. Um, you know, and kind of on that note, you know, Discovery recently cast its first non-binary and transgender characters for the franchise. Um, you know, for a show that's always been about inclusion and acceptance, why do you think it took so long for the franchise as a whole to do that? Well, you know, if you look back and you see what Roddenberry was dealing with back when TOS happened, he was really trying to break new ground and, and he kept getting met with censors left and right who were forcing him to... I don't know, curb or neuter the ideas that he had that he wanted to express. So I think it's been going on in the world of Star Trek from its inception. I think that is part of Roddenberry's great genius. Um, look, at a certain point, it just takes somebody to say, I don't really care. We're doing it. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we did on Discovery. We just, we got to a point where, you know, starting with 
um, the casting of Sonequa as Michael Burnham. Um, Brian Fuller and I were very, very clear that we wanted to cast a woman of color in the lead. We were not going to make compromises about that. We didn't want to do the show otherwise. In many ways, it was the condition of the show. Um, and I think you have to just take a stand about those things uh, and, and do them. It's always sort of bizarre to me on Twitter, the frequency with which people retweet the inevitable trolls being like, God, why are you getting politics in my sure. Star Trek? And the fact that we're still doing this in 2020, what do you make of the fact that there are still people out there who haven't <laughs> noticed that Star Trek is political is, I guess, what I'm asking. I find it, I find it amazing, but I, but you're, you're, Dan, you're exactly right that people, and it's, I, it's honestly, it's a weird testament to how powerful the franchise is that you can still miss the message completely and love it. <laughs> I find that I find that to be incredible. So if if we can get that and we can get people who completely get the message and love it, great. Fantastic. Now you also just executive produced the Comey rule on Showtime and that's going rather head on into the political oh, yeah. territory. Just a little sure. bit, Dan, just a little. <laughs> how, how was that experience in terms of, you know, removing all of these genre filters and just going political? And has it changed your prism looking at the other stuff, having had that experience? Well, I mean, look, th that, that show is a testament to Billy Ray and his, um, he, he's unbelievably tenacious about seeking out um, answers and talking to people uh, and interviewing. He took a year just to do research on that show. And we knew that that was one of those shows that it's, it's what's called a bullseye show. You can't hit around it. You have to hit right in the center of it. And the casting was so extraordinary that there, there's not one person on there who isn't fantastic. And the degree of difficulty on, on all, on casting all of those parts, people that we have such familiarity with, let alone, Trump, which, you know, who already is in so many ways perceived as a cartoon character. There's so, you know, you, you, you want to avoid the Alec Baldwin Saturday Night Live version of it because in a way it, it would have made us seem incredibly biased in our representation of that. And I think it was really important to Billy to, to try and be as fair as possible and a lot of the dialogue that Trump has is taken from speeches that he's had or, you know, public record um, so I, I think Billy just aimed to, to, you know, be as accurate as possible. Are, are we going to say there's no bias there? Of course not. There's always bias in politics. You know, nobody can present anything without a bias, but the goal was, was to be comprehensive and exhaustive in the research, because I can tell you that I was certainly one of the people who after the election was furious with James Comey and thought he had trashed everything. And I, I think now in retrospect, he made mistakes. He, there was hubris there. There was a lot of um, history was turning in a way that, frankly, none of us could understand was happening at the time. Um, but the amount, the tonnage of issues that were facing the FBI, not just Comey, but the FBI in that moment, the perfect storm of things that were happening, it was so much more complicated than so many, certainly than I understood at the time, that when Billy began to do his research about it and, under, and understood what was really going on, it became really clear that it was not a black and white issue. It became incredibly clear that there were so many shades of gray between that led to the outcome of that election. And we felt that that was an important thing for people to know, especially now, especially when it has been proven that the Russians hacked the election and are trying to do it again. It felt like an essential story for this moment. I mean, there, you know, it feels like each passing day in our current news cycle, there is another essential news story for our moment and 
you know, it's, it's head spinning. Um, you know, first of all, with Comey rule, were you disappointed that Trump didn't tweet about it? You know, and in a larger sense, considering the landscape that we're in and now that your experience, you know, with this, you know, so-called bullseye show, do you want to do another one? Well, I don't follow Trump's tweets. Um, otherwise, I think I would lose my mind. But I am told that he, God bless you. That yes. he did tweet about it the other day. So we I guess we got his attention. Do I want to do another one? I, you know, I, I'm only interested in doing it. It shows like this with uh, with with people who are are. Uh, going to work as hard as Billy did on it and dig as deeply as Billy did on it. I'm totally, totally open to it. I've, I think that we are living in a moment now where there's so much disinformation in the world. And I look, a lot of people will accuse, have already accused the Comey rule of being disinformation. It's going to be real hard for them to prove that we didn't fact check everything in that show. So, uh, you know, my feeling is, yeah, with the right story, sure. Now, with that, a lot of the conversation was about the... The disagreement in terms of when it was going to premiere that y'all on the production mm -hmm. side wanted it to premiere before and Showtime wanted to hold it. How would you characterize what those discussions were actually like before you settled on the, the actual premiere date? The truth is that there was a lot of back and forth about when that date was going to be. And we were all the, the producers and Billy, we all felt very strongly that to air this show after the election would be like throwing it out. Uh, it, you know, e either... Um, you're going to have people who are so depressed that they'll never want to watch it, you know, or, or it'll just feel so out of date. And for us, it just, we just felt like to have done all of this work, to have done all this research, Billy made promises to the cast based on his understanding that the show was going to air, uh, pre-election. There was just no world where anybody was going to feel good about that. And, um, I think Billy is part of who Billy is. He, he takes his responsibility so seriously when he makes a promise to somebody and he felt that he had made a promise to the cast and that when it, he got the sense that we may not be able to deliver on that, he was, he was compelled to speak to them. And that's ultimately how the press ended up hearing about it. And how obsessively were you monitoring what the conversations were about the show online and how did they compare to what you guys ideally wanted to see people talking about? I mean, you make a show like this and you know that people are going to hate you out of the gate, right? So there's no way around it. And, you know, it, you're, you're literally talking about the division in our country right now in the show itself. So 50% of the people, if not more, actually, in the case of Comey, much, much more, because so many people had already pre made up their minds about how they felt about Comey. And not just Republicans, Democrats hate him as well, you know, and we had to deal with that as a lot. But one thing that has been very gratifying is that People from both sides of the aisle have said, wow, there was really a lot more than I understood in that moment. And that was the whole point of the show. In a larger sense, you know, there were some rumblings that the Comey rule would air across uh, Viacom CBS networks, including CBS mm -hmm. at one point. It aired exclusively on Showtime, which, of course, is a, a premium cable network that people have to pay to see it. What was the conversation about not airing it to a bigger and broader and a free audience? I mean, the truth is that a lot of the details of that conversation happened above my pay grade. What I can tell you is that we were, there was conversation about whether or not it would be on All Access or Showtime. And those are the big conversations we were having. We always honestly imagined it as a, a streaming show, you know, or a cable show. It just never felt like it was a network show. Um, I think it would have been incredibly bold of them to do that. But I also recognize that from a corporate point of view, the challenge there would have been impossible. 
Um, so it was never really a conversation that I was that aware of. I, I was very happy with Showtime because I really like the content on Showtime. It felt like the brand identity of Showtime was perfect for what we were doing. We were going to make noise. We were going to be controversial. We were going to piss people off. And nobody at Showtime shies away from that ever. So we were we were excited about that. Is the plan still to have it eventually wind up on CBS All Access? I bet you it'll find some sort of second window there as everything merges into whatever Paramount Plus becomes. The truth is, I actually don't know. Fair, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. They'll, I think they'll figure it out over time. Uh, or maybe it will just live on the Showtime platform. So you're... Uh, yeah. any and eventually I, those platforms, I'm sure, will wind up becoming one since they are all in the same In family. some form, yeah. I, I yeah. Again, above my pay grade, I'm not sure how they're going to end up... Um, you know, putting it out. Well, taking the conversation back to Discovery, you've got season three coming back this month. As you think about the landscape, not just with the rebranding of CBS All Access to Paramount Plus, but the fact that how much the the landscape is changing right now. You know, obviously these shows keep getting unrenewed. A lot of these, um, you know, streaming shows are just by design not meant to go more than four seasons. If they're lucky, they get to four seasons. So with that in mind, how much, you know, how much life is left in, in the flagship, considering that you've got, I've already lost, lost Picard, you have the new Spock show, the animated show, the Nickelodeon animated show, low, you know, the, the you know, short tracks, et cetera. I'm Plus gonna, more, you know, there's like two more in, in the works too. Yes. There's, there's quite a few in the works. Um, I'm going to say in all honesty, there are years and years left on discovery. And I think that because, first of all, you know, Star Trek in general has had a long history of going something like seven seasons minimum. And um, we just jumped into the future where we're, in a way, it's it's not that it's a brand new show, but it's a whole new set of variables with a whole new set of ideas and stories. And I don't think we limit ourselves to thinking, oh, we're we're capped at this place. I'll tell you that that when the show starts to feel stale to us, we will be rallying to stop it. But for now, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel like we are cut, running into a shortage of stories, you know, and obviously for a show that that is set in the future, you obviously don't need to directly write the coronavirus pandemic into mm-hmm. scripts. But I do wonder how the pandemic has changed the types of stories that you want to tell. Like well, Was season three written well before the pandemic or did it change any at all during it? So we wrapped the season 10 days before lockdown. And what was crazy is that the whole season is about this, as you'll see, cataclysmic event that changed the way people communicate and separated everybody. And it's all about figuring out how to hold on to our hope when something like that happens. We had no idea this was coming, <laughs> but in a, funny, in a funny way, the whole season ended up being about exactly what we're going through right now. Um, like to a T in a very, I mean, when Michelle and I were mixing and doing finals on the, on the premiere episode, we were really chilled and got really emotional about it. Cause you know, when you're cutting your, these shows are such monsters to cut and you're, and we're moving so fast while we're also moving into future episodes that we're writing. And so you, you, you finish what you're, what you're working on and then you move on to the next thing. And then, you know, you come back to the mix, which reminds you of what you did five months ago. That, and you've already done so much between then, then and now that you have to reacclimate to it. And it was kind of like watching it again for the first time, even though we had written it, shot it, cut it. Um, and we were really struck, I think, because it was the first time we had watched it post-pandemic, uh, how, how much it was about everything. 
One of the conversations that everyone is having right now is about how production in a COVID world is going to change and how much more time it's going to take to shoot mm-hmm. even, you know, scenes of two people in a room having conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and how much more money it's going to cost to do all of that. Mm-hmm. So when you have a show that already involves exhaustive makeup, exhaustive production design, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are you prepared in can, do you think in your mind you're prepared in any way for what the new timetable of the new normal is going to be for shows like the kinds that you make? And maybe even some of the concessions that you might have to make to keep the show on budget. All great questions. Um, we just started shooting a new show and it's been a real learning curve just in the three days that we've been doing it. And um, the great news is that it's very doable, but it is a highly, highly militarized operation. Um, and everything is different. Everything is slower, you know, b- between testing and, you know, your, your set, it doesn't function like the set used to function. It, there are groups, um, groups that are vetted by the unions, pods within the groups themselves. There are rotations in and out of people so that if somebody gets sick in your pod, the pod just gets removed and another pod gets pushed in, but it doesn't infect the whole group. Like it is a massive, massive militarized operation. And, um, and and we haven't even started that yet on the Star Trek show. So there's a there's going to be a learning curve, um, but there's nothing more important than the safety of our crew. And uh, with things being slower, with, uh, you know, I think this all networks and studios are recognizing that shows now become exponentially more expensive, not because of the budgets of the shows themselves, but because of the PPE required to keep the crews safe, which was never factored into the into the show budget. So all of us, every showrunner is dealing with having to, to face that down and figure out how to still produce a show of quality while also dealing with that that very real issue. Are you recognizing that episode counts are going to have to change? Like yeah. is a 13 episode show like this going to simply be impossible to do? No, I don't think impossible, but um, we may say, okay, let's do 10 instead of 13, just because it's, you know, between, between the time it takes to shoot these and then the post, it, it is quite literally a year from the beginning of shooting to the release of our Star Trek shows, because it's really like posting a movie. So forget about how complicated it is to shoot the shows. You've, you've got like a minimum of eight to 10 months of post on the shows because of the visual effects. So it's a huge turnaround. And, um, you know, we have to look at things like page count. That's been a big thing. Usually you don't have to think about that on streaming, but now you really do because you're thinking about having to make your days in a different way and how much time you actually have to make your days. And would you rather burn through a lot of scenes and not get the coverage you need or do less scenes and take more time with them? So it's just a, and every script poses a different problem. It's not like we're always in one location. So it's a, it's a learning curve. We're all experiencing a new learning curve. If you were just to guesstimate what kind of a percent or put a percentage number on how much your budgets have, you know, obviously as someone who oversees multiple shows, you got, you know, Clarice on broadcast and a bunch on streaming, mm-hmm. et cetera. But if there was a universal percentage that you would say of how much your budget increased because of, as you said, the cost associated with PPE and et cetera, what, what would, what's the percentage difference of making a show during COVID? I'm not sure I could tell you exactly. Um, and because it, 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 it really depends on the show itself. But I'm, I'm going to give you a rough number and say that it's something like between three and five hundred thousand additional per episode for PPE. 
Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, that's and, just you know, for PPE. That's, that's not it? including the, oh, no, the additional nothing. time it takes. No, it's pay, just paying the cast and the no, crew to stay on set longer. No, no additional days, etc. No, it's just it's just in keeping people safe, and that's not a number you can skimp on. <laughs> um, I mean, what, and then when you factor in the, the cost that it takes, to, not just you know for the actors and for the crew and everything else, the time, the time. And paying people for their time, that's got to be double, triple, quadruple that number. It's the time, but it's also the psychology of people. You know, we've all gotten kind of agoraphobic, right? We're, we're, we're used to now having fear about leaving the house. And so now you're on a set filled with people who are no longer 6 to 12 feet away, but actually standing right next to you in a mask. That you, ha- you have to be really delicate about people. And, and, you know, and you're wearing so much protective gear that it's harder for people to hear each other. So things don't move. There's so many things that we're learning. Um, but you know, again, our only goal is to keep people safe. There, there, there's no show that's worth not keeping people safe for. So that's the goal. Well, what is, as you, as you see yourself as being kind of the general in this situation, in a militarized operation, how do you balance kind of the need to cheerlead and keep people's personalities up with the need to, as you say, make sure that absolutely everything is done right to the letter of the law so that nothing horrible happens? Well, look, again, there's so many people that I work with who are in charge of the day-to-day operations of keeping people safe. So it's, it's not like uh, it's just on on me. Um, I'm, luck- I'm so lucky to have the crews that we have. You know, but in equal measure, as much as I think there is a psychological component, you know, a new fear that emerges going back to that, people are also really happy to be able to work again and to know that life can go on. And, you know, we are amazing as a species in that we keep adapting. And this is another weird moment of surprise adaptation to, you know, this is this is what work's going to be like for a while for everybody. And how do we do it? And let's try and let's try and figure it out. And let's we're going to make mistakes as we go. There's no question. There's no way to get through something like this without making mistakes. Um, but we'll correct them as we go. We'll get better. One question that I'm I'm curious, you know, as a veteran showrunner who has spent a fair amount of time on set, whether it's for film or TV projects, mm-hmm. does the current state of filming? deter you from going to set anymore? Is, is that something that, that you're going to continue to do? Uh, it, I will say honestly that we have to be, the whole rule is how few people can you have on set in terms of who absolutely needs to be there. There should be no extraneous anybody or anything on set. So uh, for me, given the fact that I'm working on multiple shows a day, I actually am live linked with set from this computer I'm talking to you on. So when we get off our call, I'm going to live link with set. And I watch the dailies as they get shot. I mean, I'm literally watching the dailies and the shooting. And I can give notes to the director as we go. So the director doesn't need me sitting over her shoulder. You know, um, it's easier to text. And, you know, we're, we're learning new ways to communicate. And I think everybody's going to be going through a version of that. It'll be different when I'm directing. When I'm directing, I'll, you know, I'll be the person on set. But I, in, a, in a way, the, the number one rule is just who doesn't need to be there. Yeah, fair. You know, it, you know, getting back to to the Star Trek universe, you've got 
four, I think is my count. Animated series, Lower Decks, Picard, Discovery, then the new spinoff, Strange New Worlds, uh, featuring Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine reprising their roles. And then there's also, I, you know, obviously the Nickelodeon show that we talked about. And then the rumored sec- uh, Section 31 with Michelle Yeoh and Starfleet Academy with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage that has been rumored. I don't know how accurate that is. But how far do, do you have the Star Trek franchise mapped out? And as part of the, that question, how many is too many? Um, well, let me take the second part first. So I think that Star Trek, I feel like the world needs Star Trek right now. I feel like the world needs messages of hope. The world needs an example of how to be better. Um, I really believe that in my core. And, and the key is not to homogenize Star Trek. And the way to do that is to make sure that each show is, is carried by a different voice. Right. Like we talk, I think about the crayon analogy. There's a bunch of different colors of crayon in the box, but it's all in the same box. And I think that's how I look at Star Trek. Each show has to be a unique proposition. It can't be like any other show. Otherwise, well, I don't have to watch, you know, Picard and Discovery and Stranger Worlds are all too similar. I just need to watch one of them. No, they're all really different. And Lower Decks is entirely different from Prodigy. Really different. So I think in a world where streaming content and the way people consume streaming is so ravenous and given how hopeful and beautiful the messages of Star Trek are, I think there is, I don't think you can have too much because I think there's something for everybody and maybe you won't want to watch all of them. Maybe you'll only want to watch one, but that's okay because someone else will want to watch a different one. So I, I, I look at this more as we're putting a good out into the world we're, we're serving a greater good and we're entertaining people. And um, some people will love it and some people won't. And that's okay. Star Trek has always been about that. So that's sort of how I, I, I don't, so I don't think, short answer, I don't think you can have too much. But I think you got to be really curated and really thoughtful about what you're doing. I don't think you can just throw things at the wall. So like I said, if you look at each show, different flavor, very, very different. Um as far as so the first the first part was um uh remind me Leslie what was the first question, yeah. part of the question? how far do you have it ma- this mapped oh, out how many yeah. other shows do you have in the works you know how do you have like a the what Noah how many shows are on the air in five years in ten years yeah sorry. yeah so Heather Caden um, and Aaron Byers who uh, who, who work with me at Secret Hideout uh, we we literally just got off the call off a call before this with the network mapping us through twenty twenty seven. Um, so, and again, when I say that, it's not like it's set in stone. It's just, okay, here's a plan. Here's what we're looking at. Here's how the different shows are going to drop. You, you know, consider the fact that it takes a year from inception, from start of production to airing. So you have to plan way, way, way in advance to get these things done. And you have to stay on top of the zeitgeist and make sure that what you're doing is relevant. Um, and now take the time to make sure that everyone remains safe. And on exactly. Budget. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to plan so far in advance now in different kinds of ways to seem loose and improvisational, but there's nothing loose and improvisational about it. <laughs> I, I want to touch a little bit on Clarice here. I mean, you're obviously no stranger to franchises that come with big expectations attached. Given the number of different storytellers who have over the past 30 years kind of tackled different corners of the Thomas Harris universe, mm-hmm. what, what kind of flexibility 
does that give you guys with this story? And where do you see this fitting in with sort of, I don't know, the Michael Mann, Ridley Scott, Jonathan Demme, Brian Fuller versions of the universe? Well, let me start by saying that when I was in the eighth grade, Manhunter came out and it kind of changed my understanding of how movies get made. There was something so terrifying and so emotional about it at the same time. And I'd never seen anything like that. Um, and it introduced me to, to a, I guess, a tone or a tenor that is very uniquely Thomas Harris. Um, Science of the Lambs is, you know, one of the greatest, known as one of the greatest films of all time uh, for, for a, a great reason. It is truly brilliant. I mean, it is... It is Demi, it is Jodie Foster, it is Ted Talley, it is Tak Fujimoto, uh, it is Anthony Hopkins functioning at the highest level of their careers. I mean, they're just doing such incredible work. It's also a very problematic film in other ways. Um, but it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant work. I, I mean, you know, it, it's a work of art. Uh, every single episode is like a jewel. And the casting, the writing, the design, the production design, the, the level of attention uh, to detail on that show was so beautiful. It's a big part of why I wanted to work with Brian. I, I think the show is incredible, 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 incredible. But in terms of the flexibility that, that you have in, in doing this for CBS. What I, what I was going to say is, but none of them are about this amazing woman. None of them really are. And with the exception, obviously, of silence. And Jenny and I woke up one day and said, where is she? Where is she? It's been 30 years. Where is Clarice Starling? She's only one of the greatest heroes of, in film in the last several decades. What happened to her? Where's her story? Why can't that story be told? You know, everybody thinks that Hannibal, for very understandable reasons, that Hannibal is the sexier character because... For, you know, I don't have to tell you why. He's, a, he's an incredible character, as is Will Graham. But Clarice Starling has a truly unique, amazing psychology. And I think that part of why Silence of the Lambs was so wonderful was that the film puts you so squarely in her shoes. And it was a beautiful, beautiful portrait of an incredibly strong woman in a world that did not want her to be. And... It, it just couldn't have felt, you know, more relevant to tell that story now. So our feeling is that it's very much Clarice's time. That as much as I loved Hannibal, it was not about Clarice Starling, and that's okay. But with that comes a set of responsibilities and expectations. I'll tell you what we didn't want it to be. We didn't want it to be Clarice Starling the procedural. We just weren't going to make that show. I have no interest in making that show. Jenny has no interest in making that show, and our showrunner, Elizabeth Clavitter, has no interest in making that show. So when we, an MGM, who was you know, gracious enough to trust us with the rights to, to Clarice, had no interest in making that show. We initially thought of it as a streaming show, not going to lie. It was David Nevins who said, put it on the network. It's going to be really special on the network. Put it on the network. And I said, look, I've, I've obviously made a lot of television shows for CBS. I, I don't... I don't see that. I, I, I'm not going to reduce it to a, a procedural. He said, you can do whatever show you want. Do it on the network. I said, it's going to be serialized. He said, do it on the network. 
I said, okay. <laughs> are you sure? Just the fact that it's not procedural <laughs> yeah. on CBS yeah. is a major, major change. Yeah. I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And I have to tell you that everybody top down at that network has not given us one note to make it more procedural since we started. It's actually been kind of amazing. They've been incredibly supportive of it. And what I'll tell you is that, you know, Thomas Harris stories, but Clarice specifically, there's a procedural element to the story. Silence of the Lambs is a procedural in a, in, it, from a certain point of view. So there's a lot of investigation. But what Silence of the Lambs is more than anything is a psychological investigation into, into who Clarice Starling is and into who Buffalo Bill is and into who Hannibal is and into Catherine is. And so we felt like we had to lead with psychology. And we had to lead with that sense of emotional psychology and emotional terror that the characters are living in. Um, and that's what we've been leading with. And um, the pilot is actually called, the title of the pilot is The Silence is Over. And that's actually what we want the ad line to be for the show because that's what the show's about. It's Clarice Starling is finally speaking. And she's exploring lots and lots of new um, things about herself a year after the trauma of Buffalo Bill. And not just that trauma, she has a lot of stuff that happened to her in childhood. If you read her, the novels, there's so much to dig into there. Um, so the last thing that we wanted to do was make something that felt like it was not going to honor the legacy of that character. Yeah. You know, um, wrapping up here, you got, uh, you also have the man who fell to earth for CBS All Access and obviously so much more development. And it sounds like your company is just really continuing to grow, especially with more Star Treks in the works. And all of these shows are, of course, part of your big overall deal that you signed in 2018 with CBS TV Studios. Um, at the time I heard, you know, this was a five-year deal valued at $25 million, which I, you, you can not confirm or deny. We don't need to talk about the money, but from my understanding is that is a bargain considering where the <laughs> landscape went right right at the time that you signed. I mean, you know, a hundred million for Shonda, three hundred for Ryan, four hundred for Berlanti, and, and two hundred fifty million for the Game of Thrones guys. You know, I mean, as this market continues to blow up, have you ever considered renegotiating? I mean, you're two years into the five year deal and and look at all the things that you've produced. Plus Comey rule, I mean, that's well, a lot. Right now I'm considering that you should be my agent, Leslie. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take 10% and we won't do packaging fees. <laughs> that sounds fair. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I appreciate the question. Um, look, the way that I look at this now is I get to do something that I love more than anything. And, and we get to do it at a time where the world needs stories and the world needs inspiration. And I'm lucky to be able to do it in, in the middle of a pandemic. And those are all just, those are, those are all truths. And so my feeling is that we'll see what happens as things go, but I'm, I, I can tell you safely that everything I'm working on, I love. And there was a long, there was a period of time where I could not have told you that. And that's kind of my only standard now. Do I love it? And do I love the people I'm working with? And that's it. Yeah. Cause you have to, these are the worlds that, that you have to live in for years, especially considering, you know, with the VFX and the time it takes to do these things now. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's really it, it requires all of your time. Literally all of your time. Well, we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What are you watching now? And oh, enjoy? my God. So uh, the pandemic has given me just so much joy on the TV front. Uh, I am two episodes from being finished with Lodge 49, which I am so sad is canceled. 
It is such an incredible, beautifully written, beautifully acted show. That show is unbelievable. I fell so deeply head over heels with Pose, which I was very late to the party on. And One of my favorites. Oh, my you're, God. You're winning us both over there, here, Alex. Pose <laughs> is like, I want them all to come live at my house. I just need them all. So I can't wait for season three. Um, just started Ratched. I'm, I'm actually really converting into becoming a huge Ryan Murphy fan. So I, I think the work that he's doing of late has been incredible. What else did, have I been seeing? Um, normal People, Beautiful. Um, Dear White People, Unbelievable. I think Justin Simeon is an incredible star. I think his his vision, his compassion for uh, his characters, all of them, is extraordinary. And... Um, I can't wait to see Bad Hair, which I think drops on Hulu this month. So I'm really excited to see what he did with that. And I'm obsessed with his podcast, Don't At Me, which is just, he is, one of the things I love about his show, and, and I think him in general, is he has such an, um, a deep love of artists. And he really wants to get under the skin of, of how artists do their thing. And I, I find that to be totally inspirational. So I'm just like consuming everything I can. Um, and uh, yeah, every night is like we watch one or two shows and I'm catching up on a lot of things that I have not seen. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it, Alex. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Alex. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Season three of Star Trek Discovery launches October 15th on CBS All Access. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots of new stuff coming this week. Um, you've got The Haunting of Bly Manor and Deaf You at Netflix. Nat Geo's The Right Stuff makes its move to Disney+. Plus. Fear the Walking Dead returns on AMC. The Bachelorette gets underway on ABC. Dan, I'm sure you're excited about that. The Amazing Race kicks off on CBS. Sista's debuts on BET. And of course, Star Trek Discovery Season 3 takes flight on CBS All Access. Dan, what you got? Okay, so let's talk about The Bachelorette, Leslie. <laughs> I've never seen one minute of it of any Bachelor franchise. Oh, okay. Uh, there were there were a couple finales in a row where the powers that be at THR asked me to live tweet finales of seasons I hadn't watched for The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. So I at least watched those two episodes. Uh, anyway, not really going to be watching The Bachelorette. I will definitely be watching The Amazing Grace, though that was filmed so long ago that none of the considerations in the world currently will be impacting it. So it will just be the amazing race escapism indeed. Uh, but there still are three fairly big shows, uh, premiering this weekend on various streamers. I think probably deaf you is the one that is less big, but it will definitely find an audience. It's about a group of students at uh, Gallaudet, the college for deaf students in Washington, D.C., and uh, it is very, very interesting. It's sometimes a documentary about the deaf community and the unique <laughs> nuances, layers, hierarchies of that community, um, and just sort of where they fit into the world and into a very unique university. But I don't think that it is really supposed to be a sort of hard documentary. Uh, it is full of interesting facts and grace notes, but I would say it's probably closer to something like The Hills. It, it is a it really is a soap opera, um, but it's a fairly entertaining soap opera. The kids who they followed are are very engaging and charming and interesting. They get into all manner of shenanigans. And 
a lot of it feels really, really contrived. There are a lot of scenes which basically felt like the producer saying, okay, now you two need to sit down and have a conversation, or you really should probably get on the phone now and call this person for this strange scene that you're having on a rooftop where you're breaking things. Uh, and, and there's a lot of that, and it's a little bit distracting. But on the other hand, episodes are all between 24 minutes and in some cases as few as 18 or 19. I watched the eight-episode first season really, really quickly and, and found it entertaining enlightening and and really liked a lot of these uh the subjects and uh you know like any good documentary series you get to the end and you're you're pissed off at some of them you're cheering for some of them you're sad for some of them it, it works in that respect so i think i think that's good uh, i have definite reservations about both the haunting of bly manor and the right stuff uh haunting of bly manor is mike flanagan's follow-up to haunting of hill house which was a breakout for Netflix a couple years ago. Uh, the new season is based on Henry James' Turn of the Screw, and it's nine episodes, and the flow isn't exactly right, would be the nicest way for me to put it. It's it's kind of five episodes of build-up, and then four episodes of exposition explaining what the spooky things were in the first five episodes. But it's not really an anyway scary and to some degree that's intentional it it comes right out in the finale and says this is a love story not a ghost story and that's fine but if you're built as a ghost story and you expect people to come in and be scared people really aren't going to be scared by this uh yeah it, i don't think this was ever supposed to be an anthology and i think following the breakout of season one they found a way to kind of adapt that so but you take it as a franchise of literate ghost stories that's entirely justifiable to me and you definitely it definitely feels like it is of a piece. There are a lot of overlapping cast members, including Victoria Pedretti, who's the lead as a young nanny who comes to work for two small children and discovers that the creaky manor house in which they live might have secrets, perhaps in the wing that people tell her not to go in because everything is covered in white sheets and it's forbidden. Uh, so you got her, you have Oliver Jackson Cohen, you have uh, Henry Thomas, who plays a very, very British character with a very, very put on British accent. There's there's a lot of very likable actors here and a lot of very likable performances. And the mood is set very wonderfully, I would say. But it just gets to the point in the last four episodes where the over explaining of things that in some cases have to be left to the imagination, it becomes a disappointment. So so there's that. I, I was also disappointed by the right stuff, but part of why I was disappointed by the right stuff is because Tom Wolfe's book is one of the best nonfiction books ever. It is just a triumph of both reporting, storytelling, and a wonderful writer's unique prose. And then the 1983 Philip Kaufman feature, it, it's glorious on every level. It's 192 minutes that whizzes by. It feels like it's it feels like it's 90 minutes. It's just got one of the best casts of any movie ever. It is a movie which, even though it is, um, you know, however many years old it is at this point, 37, uh, the special effects feel current and remarkably achieved. It's got one of the all time greatest scores ever put attached to a movie, it's just a wonderful movie attached from a wonderful book. And the 
TV adaptation, which features Leonardo DiCaprio among its executive producers, but really was showrun by Mark Lafferty. Uh, it's fine. It's good. That's about it. And so that's a little bit disappointing. But if you come in with lower expectations, maybe you won't be disappointed. It's uh, it is the story of the Mercury 7 astronauts. Once again, it's not really all that much taken from the Tom Wolf book at this point. The first episode is very much taken from it, but subsequent episodes, uh, you know, lots of it feels a lot like ABC's Astronaut Wives Club. And I'm not saying that is necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the Tom Wolf book. So yeah, there's there's some good acting in it. Jake McDormand plays Alan Shepard. He's uh, he's solid. Uh, Screen Actors Guild Award nominee uh, Patrick J. Adams plays John Glenn. He's very good. He's not Ed Harris, but you know that's that's just how it goes. A lot of the actresses, Nora Sadner, is very very good. Um, just a, a great cast. It looks pretty. It looks bright. It could use so much more personality because there's so much personality in the story, and there's almost none in the storytelling, and that's just too bad. Uh, there there's just a lot here, and there are so many things that are in the book that didn't make it into the movie. So, yeah, I, I was disappointed, but not in any way bored by it. And it's going to be a multi-season thing. So maybe some of the things that I felt were missing from these first five episodes that I've seen, you know, there's no Chuck Yeager. That's ridiculous. Sam Shepard is kind of the defining piece of the movie. Um, and Chuck Yeager is a centerpiece of the early chapters of the book. Maybe he pops up, though, in episode seven in a flashback. I don't know. Anything's possible. Uh, so, yeah. It is it is OK, therefore slightly disappointing, but it's also not bad, therefore a thing that you could watch. And since it's on Disney Plus, it's clearly intended to be watched by the whole family. And I think it probably achieves that. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of things. And then there's The Bachelorette. <laughs> well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And that seems like where we wrap things up. As always, we thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And a reminder, if you like us, please continue to spread the word and let THR know. As we've discussed on this show for months and, well, for much of this week's episode, the industry is changing very rapidly and we are not immune from being unrenewed. Until then. Subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, review us. I hear those things really do actually impact placement on various podcasting platforms. So, yeah, uh, we're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come say hi to us. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's TV's top five. The number five at THR dot com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan, stay safe, everyone, and go register to vote. <laughs>